Välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Färrochsad och vi ansvarar för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra den franska författaren Edouard Louis i samtal med vår egen Athena. Varmt välkomna. Han hade bett mig att följa med honom till operan en eftermiddag. Och jag blev hänförd. Jag vet inte om det var musikens skönhet som gjorde det. Eller om operan fick mig att känna mig som en fullfjädrad borgare. Det ena går förmodligen inte att skilja från det andra. Kunde någon bild ha varit mer främmande för min far- en den av mig sittande på operan i Paris, sida vid sida med en författare. Man måste ha upplevt det för att förstå. Men jag vill ändå försöka förklara. Allt jag gjorde fick en svindlande betydelse. Eftersom hela världshistorien smög sig in i allt som hände i mitt liv. Världshistorien med dess klyftor och orättvisor. När jag klev in på operan tänkte jag det var aldrig meningen att jag skulle komma in i den här salen. När jag slog mig ner på en uteservering i Marais och läste ett verk av Derrida eller Arendt tänkte jag det var aldrig meningen att jag skulle sitta här det var aldrig meningen att jag skulle få veta att de här författarna existerar. Jag kände en sorts medlidande, eller åtminstone sorgsenhet vid tanken på alla som besökte stora teatrar i Paris eller satte sig på uteserveringar utan att inse vilken tur de hade, utan att hänföras. Alla som gjorde det på ren rutin, precis som de gjort sedan de var barn, som deras förföräldrar och mor och farföräldrar hade gjort före dem, för att de var födda in i en mer privilegierad värld än jag. Mitt privilegium var att ha upplevt ett liv utan privilegier. Tack och varmt välkomna till internationell författarscen. Det ni just hörde var Edouard Louis bok Att förändras en metod. Utgiven av Wallström och Widstrand i fantastisk översättning av Marianne Tuveson. Marianne, absolut. Marianne Tuveson har också översatt debutboken Att göra sig kvitt, Eddie Belgyll, och följt författaren med böckerna som kom efteråt. Våldets historia, Vem dödade min far och en kvinnas frigörelse. Det är böcker som alla ställer klassresans frågor. Vad driver en människa att lämna? Vilka är människorna hon förlorar? Kan man någonsin känna sig hemma igen? Jag heter Ida Linde och är curator för litteraturen här på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Athena Faruxad som nu ska samtala med just Edouard Louis. You're very welcome on stage. Good evening, everyone. Hello, Edouard. Hello, Athena. Welcome to Thank Stockholm. Thank you very much. We're so happy to have you back. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks to you, thanks to the people who invited me, including you, and thanks to the people who are here tonight. Thank you. Hmm. So, Ida already did the introduction. <laughs> and when it comes to your importance and brilliance, 
Uh, as a writer, I think the crowd speaks for itself. This event has been sold out since summer. Um, so let's just dive into the conversation. And you're here tonight to speak about your latest book, Changer Method, at Ferendras and Mathode, uh, from last year. And it continues where your first book ends, let's say, right? Uh, so here in this book, we meet Eddie, who's uh, just about to leave his uh, home village to go to Amiens, uh, to go to high school, uh, and who's leaving behind a childhood of poverty, misery, homophobia. Uh, and the book is a story of queerness and social mobility, class mobility, uh, and sort of the difficulties and desires that come with it. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, but I would say that more than anything, it is a story about how different relationships change the life course of a human being. Okay. Uh, so could you start off with telling us about these relationships? Yes. Um, in, in, you know, in, in a way, uh, this book, Changer Method, is the, the book I wrote with the most uh, simple plot, in a mm. way. Uh, it's the story of a, of, a, of a boy, of a kid, the kid I used to be, uh, who was bullied at school, who was called a faggot by the other kids, who was a source of shame uh, for his family. My father was so ashamed of me, my mother was so ashamed of my feminine gesture, of my desire for the boys. And this is the story of a kid who will want to escape in order to get a revenge mm. against this crushed and destroyed childhood. And I remember I was, you know, 10 or 11 years old and and those boys were spitting on me at school telling me you're a faggot we will kill you and i remember thinking one day i will do things and i will achieve things and i will do important things and this will be my revenge against those boys mm -hmm. and they will look who i am and they will think oh, we were wrong mm -hmm. to think he was nothing in fact this guy was someone he could be someone and it's it's too it's too adult for a kid to it's kind of displaced to think like this at ten or eleven years or eleven years old. But still, it was my my obsession. One day I will prove them I can be something. And so the plot is about this escape in order to take a revenge against a destroyed past. And what makes this change possible is, as you say, um, the encounters and the friendship. And my book is a manifesto for the um, transformative power of friendship. Nothing changes you like friendship. You, you ask anyone about their life, who changed them? It's always friends, friends at school, friends in high school, friends at university. There is almost um, a kind of, uh, anti like, uh, of antinomy between uh, friendship and family. I, mean, I met so many people who... You know, when they had a family, it stopped everything, you know. One day, it doesn't happen for, apply for everyone. Uh, but very often, people, they have kids, and suddenly they go, they move in the countryside, they find a little house. Mm. And then, because of the heaviness of family, their life kind of shrink. And all the things they were doing when they were students or young with their friends, they don't, they don't do it anymore. There is a kind of tragedy in the familial structure of your world shrinking. And they always remember everything that friendship changed in their life. Mm. And uh, I know some people like you who managed to um, have a crazy relationship to family. Uh, <laughs> um, but it requires, I don't know, so many different things. Uh, whereas friendship is always this transformative form. So I wanted to pay tribute to friendship because the, these kids that I was who was nobody and who wanted to become somebody made it because of friends. Mm. And it is really a tribute to the formative powers of, of friendship. I'm thinking about the relationship with Elena mm -hmm. to start with, which is maybe sort of the core of the book, actually, mm -hmm. what, what actually enables 
the eddy of the book to go through all these phases that come later on. Can you tell us a bit about that relationship? <laughs> so this, this girl, uh, Elena, uh, I met her when I arrived in high school. I arrived in high school by by accident. I already mm. I already said that story in uh, in in my first book, The End of Eddie. Um, I was this little gay boy, not masculine enough, and and at school nobody wanted to be my friend, which is a very common thing. I'm okay saying this. I don't want to make you cry. I'm, I don't care. <laughs> uh, uh, but I didn't have friends. People didn't want to be friend with me, and. I was desperately looking for a way to be loved and to have people around me. Mm -hmm. So I remember I was that age, 12 or 13, and I would go to every club that the school was creating in order to connect with people. You know, there was a chess club, there was a calligraphy club, there was a comic club. I hated comics and I, I went because I wanted to find somewhere where I, I would exist. Mm -hmm. Um, I was failing at everything. I was the worst at calligraphy. I had ink in my hairs, on my face. I was, I hated it. Uh, and one day I went to a theater club that was just created. One day was written, a new theater club, come at noon with your own sandwich. Um, I went and the teacher asked us to play something. And I did. And for the first time of my life, people uh, looked at me mm. and people loved me for the first time. Mm. I saw them like being silent and suddenly applauding me. And it was as if the, the applause was covering all the noise of the insult of my childhood. Mm. Faggots, pédé, pédale, enculé, tapette, tarlouse, all the... And I think it was because as a gay, as a gay boy, I didn't have... I didn't have um, I had to play roles in order to protect myself. Mm. I was constantly trying to be more masculine, to be good uh, at soccer, to pretend I love uh, girls. To... And because of that, I knew what it was to be a role. I was not a good actor. I just knew what was a role. Mm. And because of that, a teacher told me there is a high school in the city where you should go. And nobody would go in high school in my family. But because of this theater accident and just this little desire of being loved, not the love for theater, not the love for literature, just the wish to be loved by people, I, crush, I crashed in this high school. And there I met this girl, Elena, and her parents were uh, an academic uh, and an ancient actress. And they had books at home, they had piano at home, uh, they had uh, pieces of art on the wall, like reproduction. They were talking about music all the time. And there I thought, maybe I can find finally a life of my own, you know? Mm. A life in which I could belong, and also more in a more ugly way, uh, a life in which I could find something that my parents didn't have. So it was my revenge. I am going mm. to know who is Jean-Sébastien Bach. I'm going to know who is Marcel Proust. I'm going to know who is Toni Morrison. And then I will be able to humiliate my parents back and tell them I have something you don't have. Mm. So this book is also, to, also trying to show this more a complicated and a violent and ugly aspect of changing. It's not all about beauty. It's also about a history, a violent history. Mm. Um, so both emancipation and, and violence were possible through this girl who completely uh, transformed me, mm. completely. I think actually it's a book about the costs of change mm. and, and how painful change can be and what you have to leave behind in order mm -hmm to change, but we'll, we'll get back to it. Mm -hmm. mm, I have to confess that I texted you late last night <laughs> uh, asking you whether or not we should sort of talk about, whether we should talk about the character when we speak about Changer Method or if we should talk about you, you know? Because, you know, I'm schooled in this tradition uh, where we always make a distinction between the writer and the narrator, no matter how autobiographical the book is. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very, there's a very clear line and it's very important to stick to it. Uh, so I was confused. And what did you say? What was your answer? 
Uh, no, there is no line between the narrator and, um, and, and me. Uh, <laughs> yes, I never understood the concept of narrator. I mean, in my <laughs> yes. work, in my own work, I never, I never grasped it. Mm. Uh, but I think this is interesting because even if you're writing right from the start, I mean, uh, starting with um, The End of Eddie is, of course, very autobiographical and very... Uh, oriented towards sociology, um, there's still an element of fiction, I would say, in your first book. Because, uh, for instance, I mean, you have these very vivid descriptions of the scenes that almost, for me, are fictional. You know, it's, it's, very, um, it's very filled with materiality and body in, in a fictional way, somehow. And also the names of the characters in the family and, and the village and cities have changed. Uh, whereas, in this book, the latest one, I think there's none of that left <laughs> somehow. So I'm thinking, is there an urge for you as a writer to, to sort of become more and more biographical uh, with every, every book? Uh, sort of aiming more and more for truth, trying to sort of remove the traces of dishumiliation somehow and you know, leave it behind. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, clearly, uh, this is this is the this is a fact, uh, and of course there are uh, elements of what belongs traditionally to to, to fictions mm. in some of my books, but because I want to steal them to make autobiography more strong, it's a like kind what of elements, a, for instance? as you say, like the the, the descriptions or, for example, the different level of languages. You know, mm. I play a lot, particularly in Eddie or in History of Violence. I play a lot with different languages, the working mm. class language of my childhood, my language today. I intertwine the languages together. Mm. Um, so it's about uh, being a thief in order mm. to make uh, autobiography uh, um, stronger. I believe we are in the beginning of the history of autobiography, mm -hmm. even though they are, of course, people like Montaigne or people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote a long time ago autobiographical work. But now I think we can... Some people, and I try to understand this, uh, understood how um, how political the autobiographical form can be and what kind of political power autobiography can carry with it. Because autobiography has something um, inescapable. Mm. There is always an underneath message of autobiography, which is to say what is here today is happening while you are reading. Mm. And in a way, it makes people very uncomfortable mm. um, because they cannot like turn their head like they would do when they walk down the street and see a homeless person and try not to watch. And sometimes I have the impression that some of the classical ideas of fictions or novel provide to people kind of life jackets in order to not uh, be confronted to reality. Mm. So you can write a book about masculine violence, about racism, about refugees. They will always say it's a beautiful work of fiction or it's nicely written or as if it was a way of like not watching. Mm. There, is this, there is this scene that I love to... Uh, this scene that I always uh, talk about of, uh, of one day Jean-Luc Godard receiving an, an honorary César in France um, given by Isabelle Huppert and, and Jean-Luc Godard is called on stage to deliver a, a speech and when Godard goes on stage um, he doesn't say thank you to my mother or thank you to my screenwriter. He says, I would like to thank the cleaning woman of Gaumont and the people who answer the phone on Gaumont all day long. And you have this very bourgeois room of the Caesar ceremony in France mm. uh, with beautiful tuxedo and beautiful dresses. And when Godard says this, when he says thank you to the cleaning woman, everybody is bursting, you know, people laugh. Mm. So if you say thank you to your mother, everybody thinks it's moving. But if you say thank you to the cleaning woman, everybody thinks it's funny. Mm. And I always saw those laughters from the audience as a kind of physical strategy in order to escape what Godard was saying. There would be no movie if there were no people cleaning, if there were no people cleaning the toilets mm. of the actors, you know? Mm. They are part of the movie making. And when you go watch a movie, you deny that. You deny that when you see Catherine Deneuve or Isabelle Huppert on, on set, someone was cleaning their bathroom. And, and so it's like kind of like saying out loud everything we bury 
in order to make our life bearable. And, and, and in the continuation of this, I have the impression that the autobiography is a kind of unescapable weapon, you know, of you have to watch. Doesn't mean that fiction is bad or that fiction cannot be subversive if we think of Toni Morrison or like she made some people crazy with her fictions. But here in the autobiographical work, there is something that we can uh, achieve. And I don't count the times where people in like book signings uh, told me, uh, but there is a little bit of fiction as if it would have reinsured them about what I was saying in a mm. way. And I don't ah. want to give them the, this safety jacket. Yes, because mm. it's not like, I mean, if I was saying doing fiction, I would say it. I, there are so many fiction writers that I admire. Uh, but uh, yes, I have the impression of, uh, uh, yes, there is an, something irritative in, 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 in autobiography that makes people mm scared, you know, mm. and in a way you, th there are so many people who lately said, oh, you know, now everybody wants to talk about themselves, everybody, everybody wants to say I, everybody right. wants to, um, and in fact if you do like a very simple sociological Bourdieusian analysis of what was, were the last 20 Goncourt Prize, what were the last 20 Nobel Prizes, what were the last uh, 20 Man Booker Prize, what are the 500 books, uh, last books that my publishing house here in mm. Sweden uh, published, you will realize that the part of autobiography is very, very small, mm. extremely small, sometimes even non-existent. I think that Annie Ernaud might be one of the first autobiographical works to be mm. rewarded for this. So that, that's why it's only the beginning of a history. And in a way, mm. autobiography makes people scare the same way, you know, like uh, when, when racist people or transphobic people uh, see uh, one black person or one trans person, they say, oh, it's everywhere. You know, they are everywhere. Everybody wants to change his gender. Those people are invading our countries. And uh, it's funny, but it's true. There is a, a link between a paranoia and subversion. When people feel subverted in their habit and in their conservatism, they turn it into paranoia. So they have the impression that autobiography is everywhere because they are scared of autobiography. And I'm glad to make people scared. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love this threat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it's only the beginning of the autobiographical yes, era. Sorry. <laughs> but, but isn't the biggest difference between fiction and autobiography that uh, relief, you know, has to be somewhere outside of the book? You know, if when you sort of when you read an autobiographical book. Uh, you will not sort of be offered this cathartic element that the classical, um, you know, drama or the classical narration offers you within the limits of the book. You have to look elsewhere, you have to out look outside, you have to look at the world mm -hmm. to sort of find relief. You have to look at politics. Yes, ab absolutely, and uh, it works for everything I, ju I just said, you know, I mean, I would... I would hate a world where everybody would do the same things that I do, you know? Uh, I think that, as you were saying, there are uh, some things in fictions or in politics or in other forms and other formats that say things that what I do or autobiography or what some people do cannot, cannot deliver. So uh, it's, it's, it's of course important to uh, uh, kind of fight for a certain definition of literature, but that would not necessarily completely exclude other forms mm. of, uh, uh, of, of, of doing, of doing. Mm. I mean, even, even when you do, even when you do politics on an everyday basis, even when you are an activist, uh, the reason why you are an activist is because you have you do other things. You have moments of suspension. Mm. Otherwise, you would turn crazy. Mm. You need to read about love. You need to have sex affairs. You need to have fun with your friends at the restaurant. Not everything can be about it. Mm. So, so yes, I, am, I I I I think that all of it participates in a, in a kind of. A, the, 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 the person who told that to me, that surprised me, was uh, Ken Loach when we did a, we did mm. a conversation together. 
uh, that we published uh, as a book. Uh, actually, Sweden is the only country in Europe where they don't publish it. Maybe it's too political. Uh, Sounds like Sweden. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and Ken Lodge was dealing with working class, with uh, so, uh, society issues and everything. Someone asked him uh, in the book, uh, what should be a movie? And Ken Loach was the first one to say, I will never say what should be a movie, otherwise I would destroy art. So I believe also in being both radical and mm. being also open to a pluralist idea mm. of art. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the book a bit, uh, something that struck me when it comes to change is how physical the processes of change are in the book uh, that you undergo. Uh, like Elena, uh, after some time in this relationship, she tells you, now I will teach you not to eat like a peasant, right? Uh, her mother also renames you. One day you knock on their door, she opens the door and she says, bonjour Edouard. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope you don't mind me calling you that. It is not a real name. <laughs> Um, you know, I thought it would fit you better. Uh, and when you come to Paris, it's a, a, a lot of the stories about the changing physically, changing the teeth, changing the hair, and so on. Uh, this made me think of, of your story almost as like a modern Pygmalion myth, you know? Um, that the book is about sort of a, a, a very physical reshaping and changing of the body in order to fit in to this bourgeois class. Did you, what would you say about that? I mean, the, the book is telling the story of a, a complete submission mm. uh, to the bourgeoisie. Mm. I was doing everything the bourgeoisie wanted me to do, mm. you know. They asked me to do my, my teeth again. I spent five years fixing my teeth. They called me Edouard because it was more bourgeois than Eddie. I called myself Edouard. Uh, they asked me to eat differently. I, 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 I was eating differently. And in a way, I mm. completely submitted myself without questioning anything. And I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the story of a 16, 17, f uh, 14, 18 years old boy who wanted to save himself from his childhood. Mm. Uh, so he couldn't afford questioning things. He couldn't afford criticism. He mm. couldn't afford distance. Uh, I wish I had a more heroic story, but mm. reality is not always heroic. Mm. And it is important to tell the story of all the battles we lose and how much we are not heroes. Um, and, but, but also, in a, in a paradoxical way, the book also says that um, the, 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 this complete submission became also for me a weapon to then challenge mm. and fight against this dominant class, I am try as I am trying to do now in my books or in the novels that I'm writing. Mm. There is a complex dialectic mm. a process between being completely submitted to something and then acquiring all the codes that will help you to fight mm. the people who create domination. There is, there is a very, at a completely other level of violence, of course, much more violent. There is, there is an, a, a book by uh, uh, Asia Jebar, an, an, an Algerian writer, uh, called L'Amour, La Fantasia, in which she says that um, when French people colonized her country, um, they went to Algeria, they burned the villages, uh, they killed the men, they raped the women, uh, and they imposed French on Algerian people in Algeria. Um, and two generations happens, and Asya Jebar is born there, and those colonizers impose her French. Mm -hmm. And Asya Jebar says, but now, because they imposed French to me, I have French mm -hmm. to write against them, and I have the weapon that I can use against themselves, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, I can and I can fight them back. Mm -hmm. And once again, at a completely, completely different level, I think that of course I wouldn't be able to fight against class domination or the violence of the dominant class today 
if I didn't know all of their codes, all of their rules, all of their ways of doing. Um, and um, the book is trying to deal with this, uh, yes, this kind of complexity in a way. Hmm. It's sort of like Audrey Lord would say, but the opposite, right? Using the master's tool to dismantle Absolutely. The, dismantle, the, the master's house. No? They don't, they don't, I mean, the, the, the dominant <laughs> class is in a trap. They don't remember <laughs> that in imposing you their life, they give you the weapons to destroy them. They do it by accident. <laughs> uh, right. And you know, and yes. then they suffer from it, but they, mm. they, they don't see at the moment that there is a price to pay on imposing your language on someone, that you will have to pay that price later. Mm. I see. This is, because I was actually very preoccupied with exactly this while reading the book, because the book is, you know, a manual for change on an individual level, mm. uh, but not on the level of society. Uh, and, and, you know, the, as you're saying, the, the Edouard of the book is completely obsessed with sort of wiping out all the traces of working class uh, life and, and his background, uh, becoming respectable. You know, respectability mm -hmm. is such an important notion, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and when I think about you, you know, the person and the writer, Edouard, uh, to me, in a way, you're none of those things, you know, <laughs> because because you really stand sort of on the forefront of the French left. You're active in so many social movements in in Paris, and and for me, that's sort of the opposite of trying to act respectable in the world, you know, okay. trying to be. Uh, lovable in the eyes of the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. and, and I read somewhere where you say like that progressives can't sit back, you know, and, and just say, oh, look, you know, the rise of fascism, isn't it awful? Mm -hmm. uh, aren't they horrible? Uh, that instead we must create the conditions of change. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, for me, this is an intriguing thing because I read all your books and all five of them, they are in different ways preoccupied with becoming respectable, you know? Mm -mm. And then I know you, and as a person, you couldn't care less about <laughs> respectability, you know? Uh, and especially as an activist. Uh, so I think this paradox is very, very interesting. No, because it's um, I'm 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 trying to uh, uh, describe uh, also the mechanism of uh, alienation, mm. and uh, but it's an alienation that I escaped. So now I can take a distance from that res idea of respectability. But uh, when I was a child, or for my mother, uh, for example, if you take at her level what it was to be dreaming of the life of the bourgeoisie, was dreaming of the life of the dominant class, this is something you can reject only when you already have it, mm. you know? Yes. Uh, we were dreaming when I was a child, we were dreaming of money, of respectability, of... Uh, the, the, the only violent, really violent thing was culture, much more than much more than money or much more than social class. In a way, when we would see the, I don't know, the, 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 the living room of uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, Donald Trump, we would dream of living in a beautiful living room like this. We felt so miserable. But when we would see a book, the book was telling us, you don't belong to that life. You don't belong to the life of people who read books, uh, who are cultured, and therefore talk well, and therefore have power over the others. I remember how much culture was uh, humiliating us. And I describe in Changer Method that I knew that. And when I was coming to my family in the weekend, when I was starting to change, I knew that the most violent thing to do was to go on the sofa and take a book and mm. show to my parents that I was now part of the people who were reading. Because I knew that when I was a child, when we would see the little elite of the village, like the doctor of the village, for example, I remember we were so humiliated. You know, we had the impression we were peasants contrary to him, that our body was uh, were curved contrary to him. That he, uh, and as soon as he entered, he didn't need to be violent. 
violence was inscribed in the objectivity of the world. Already we felt inferior. And suddenly I was changing and I was becoming the body that humiliated me in my childhood. Mm. And uh, uh, then writing was a way of, uh, as you say, kind of like getting rid of that. So it's like three step uh, the childhood, getting rid of the childhood and getting rid of the way I was getting rid of things. Mm. Not in order to go back to the childhood, because I don't also forget what, my, what was my childhood, you know. I don't forget that 55% of the people in my village vote for the far right. I don't forget the homophobia. I don't forget that my mother was at home with my father telling her, you have to stay home, you have to cook, you have to raise the kids, you shouldn't have a driver license, you shouldn't work because your place is at, is at work. So it's not about coming back, it's about fighting for. Mm. And this is what I'm trying to do. Mm. I was also thinking that it has to do with presence, somehow. Um, because, you know, your book is about this constant change that you un undergo uh, during these 10 years. Um, and change is, of course, a movement away from something and towards something else. Mm. And in that way, I think it is the opposite of presence somehow. I don't know if you would agree, mm. but um, I have this feeling when I read your book that what is being grieved, what the, what the narrator or what you are grieving is sort of the access to presence rather than because you say, you know, that um, am I forever destined to long for another life? Uh, I, I write because sometimes I regret distancing myself from the past. You know, th there's this wish of going back. Mm -hmm. But when I read it, I think, mm, no, this person, I'm speaking of what you just mentioned, that you have not forgotten, does it really regret uh, this, uh, doesn't really want to go back and sit with the boys and drink whiskey in this you know, Best cheap stuff. plastic cups uh, that you write about. It's not that. It's what what is lost and what is being grieved is the access to presence mm -hmm. for somebody who is in constant change and in constant motion. Absolutely. Yes, it's about... So first it says, it says something which was important for me was to, to describe the change uh, not as the result of... Um, of a pure conscience, of a pure freedom. You know, it was my obsession with all the books I write, uh, I wrote in the past. I wanted to show that, you know, I was not more free or more sensitive or more clever or more anything than my mother or my father or my sister. It would be just awful to say this. Um, uh, and, and in a way, a lot of stories of, of transformations and of uh, Pygmalion story and class traveling are kind of haunted by this mythology of the flower within the, the mud, you know? Yes. Uh, if you read the, the Red and the Black by Stendhal, it, 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 which is the big story of like change, like the big classic about change, uh, the, the, the book starts with Julien Sorel reading a book in a tree while his father is screaming and mumbling uh, at his feet, you know? So mm. this boy is already a flower in this kind of uh, muddy mm. ocean. And, and all, all my books that I wrote were to deconstruct this kind of mythology mm -hmm. of the class traveler mm -hmm. and, and, to, and, and to show that, in fact, I, it was not a matter of choice. I, I didn't have a choice but to escape. And uh, the, the, the violence that my body was accumulating in my childhood was so big mm -hmm. that I didn't have any chance but to but to, to escape. And in the book, I tell that I suffer from the change because it, precisely I don't choose it. Mm. My body tells me you have to do it, otherwise you are lost, otherwise you will go back in past, otherwise you will be stuck in the village, otherwise you will be working at the factory like your father, and you have to escape, and you have to escape, and you have to escape. And I wanted to tell that, and, and I wanted to tell this kind of also, as you were pointing out, uh, a kind of melancholy mm. of this. Right. And 
it's bizarre because when I finished the manuscript of this book, which took me uh, years, I mean, I, I, it took me almost five years to finish this book. Um, when I sent the manuscript to some, some friends um, around me who are very different people, very different background in different countries with different languages, um, they all read the last part of the book when I, uh, when I say, did my transformation give me the freedom or the happiness that I was longing for. And I'm not sure of that. Mm. I'm not sure that the dreams of the kid I used to be uh, were realized through the process of transformation. Mm. And the strange thing is that when I so show this manuscript to all of those friends, most, almost all of them told me, oh, you can say that. You cannot. You, they told me, because you cannot be sad, you don't have the right to. You come from this little village and now you have books, you, they are translated, you travel the world, you meet Toni Morrison, you meet, you meet Anne Carson, you cannot be sad. And suddenly I, I was thinking, but is there like a kind of a differential uh, and unequal access to melancholy? in a way that if you are born in a bourgeois family and you tell about your melancholy, everybody will think it's poetic. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big history of the literary tradition, which is sometimes incredibly beautiful. But if you come from working class and you are melancholic, then people will say that you complain. And I, I realize there is a kind of a differential access to melancholy. We don't have the same access to melancholy. We don't all have the right to, to be melancholic. Uh, it's something we see a lot in families also. So often, you know, you have a family with, uh, in the traditional family, with the, the, the wife, the kids, the, the father. The father is going crazy, having affairs, spending the money of the couple. The kids are doing, going through adolescence crisis. And we always expect the woman to hold the family tight, you know? I don't know, I don't know if you saw this White Lotus series on, on HBO, mm -hmm. where you have a very bourgeois family, very privileged, mm -hmm. and the, the father is completely obsessed with himself, think he will have a cancer, think he will die, think he will disappear. The kids are going crazy all around, and we always expect the mother uh, to hold the family tight and to shut up about her feelings and to shut up about her pain and to shut up about her doubts. And at a completely different level. I think that people who change class also don't have this access uh, to melancholy. They don't have the access to say, did change bring me what I wanted? Where is that? Where is that? Where is that statement? And in fact, when you start to open up this conversation, you realize that you have a sea of melancholy around you. But people didn't have a space to say it. How many people did I meet in, after publishing Changer Method who told me, you know, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't do it because coming from where I come from, I thought it, I was not legitimate. How many people told me I wanted to become an academic teacher, but I became a school teacher. It's a beautiful job, but it was not the one of my dreams because I thought it was not my place in this world to do that. Um, like so many women, because they are women in history, abandon their dreams because they thought it was not their place. So yeah. there is also always this link between women and, and class transfuge. And about people who change class, I realized that there were no, nothing about it. There were no space where you can express this. You can, you can go in the street, say, I am gay. You can so, go in the street, say, I'm a victim of racism. You can go in the street, say, I am a woman. But you cannot go in the street and say, this society crushed my dreams. Mm. And in a way, I wanted to write this book in order to give a space to that melancholy. Mm. And what does it mean? Because it has no place. Mm. I think that's a very important point. Uh, and speaking of that, I want to ask you about Cynthia. <laughs> because to me, one of the most interesting characters in the book is Cynthia. Uh, but she appears very briefly. I mean, she's one of the you know, per very peripheral side character in the book. Um, you share an apartment with her in Amiens while starting high school. Uh, and you both go there to study. But she refuses this change. 
that she has started to undergo. Mm -hmm. mm, and she doesn't like being there. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't go to school, she doesn't spend time in the apartment, and in the end, she interrupts her studies and she goes back mm -hmm. to the village. And I think, even though you briefly mention her, she is a very important character in the book. Um, so, what do you think? How do you regard her sort of position in the story, speaking of the, the melancholic aspects of sort of class mobility? Mm -hmm. Yes, she was, the, she was the only person with me uh, in the village to start studies. Um, so that's why we decided to move together after high school um, to, 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 to go to university. And as you say, um, the more she was facing change and the more she wanted to go the opposite direction, her body couldn't take it. There was something. Mm. The more she was there in Amiens, the more she wanted to go back to the village, even though she was the only one in the village who had started a different trajectory. And, you know, I, it's strangely, I, I experienced that uh, years later with my little brothers and sisters, when I started to study and I went to university, and suddenly I thought, oh my God, I will, I will do it for my little brother and sisters. They are like mm. six or seven years old, uh, younger than me. So when I was uh, 17, they were 11. And I remember having an obsession. I was thinking I will buy them book, I will bring them to the cinema, I will make them listen music, I will... I was... I, I loved them, we were close. Uh, and I wanted to save them from the village and from poverty. And the more I was doing this, and the more they were telling me, uh, but we are not like you. Mm. We don't want to be like you. Um, mm. Which is... Uh, both a big questioning of uh, what is a good life and how much when you change class you have this kind of arrogance of thinking that your life is the good life. But at the same time, my brothers and sisters are now 21 years old. They don't have money to go to the doctor. They work for Amazon. They work for McDonald's. They are in the, co in the cold. They are paid nothing. They are humiliated all day long. So it's not to say that reading books makes you better. I don't care about reading books or not. People do whatever they want, but it just gives you a little bit less violent life. Yeah. And I remember fighting like this, but it didn't work. And it was like it was like Cynthia, um, uh, precisely because the, the, the it's not a matter of individual; it's a matter of structure. And you don't just decide that you will change. It's just the intersection of a, a story you accumulated, of a collective story you accumulated. Where do you come from? How was your family? How were the friends you met? What is your sexuality? What, uh, all of that m made this obsession for me to escape, but not for, the, for that girl. And like my family, it was not because she was less clever or talented. Um, it's a matter of, 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 a, of a context of something that was, that was bigger than her. And in a way, saying this is much more optimistic. Mm. Because uh, if you just think people can change, then you sit back and you wait for a miracle to happen. But if you say that change occurs through a context, that is what we call politics. Mm. And you can try to change the social, political context that make people escape. I wasn't born different, I became different from my family because I had no choice. So if there was a process of becoming, for me it was through insult, people telling me, you faggot, you are different, you are different, you are different, you are different, and then I had no choice but to be different. But if there is a process of becoming, how can we use politics as a laboratory to create other processes of becoming? If it was possible one time, it means it's possible other times. And that's why we have to figure out. And, 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 and not about, uh, yes, individuals that will make that. It's complicated. It's everything. It's your class, your gender, your sexuality, the moment you are, the structure around you, the welfare state. Everything is going together. I don't have a simple solution. Mm. But I, I know that it happened. Mm. It happened for me. So there is something we can do. You even speak about, you mention sort of the notion of stigma as salvation, mm. which I think is a very strong 
notion uh, that you put into words that that it is actually this sort of being treated uh, so disrespectfully for mm -hmm. numbers of years that that is sort of the the leverage through which salvation is acquired absolutely yes in a way you know i strangely cherish the homophobia i endured from my childhood more than anything else it's the most precious thing that happened to me because it made me escape because it saved me because uh, I don't have the life of my brother or my sister I was uh, talking about today, you know. My sister, she arrives at six at McDonald's, it stinks, it's dirty, uh, she smells oil, people are screaming at her, clients are despising her, she doesn't travel, she never crossed the border, my mother never took a flight, never crossed the border. Homophobia saved me from that in a very strange way. And what I'm trying to show in, in, in my book is this also this kind of uh, complexity of domination and this dialectic of domination. And today I think that particularly in the mainstream discourse, particularly in the left, which is my side, mm. um, we tend to think about politics in a too simple way, you know, in a too static way. Um, um, for example, when some people say uh, in the political field, uh, white straight man, you know, mm. uh, what does it mean? You know, <laughs> white straight men are dominant because they don't face homophobia, they don't face masculine domination, they don't face police violence, so they have all those privileges. But at the same time, I escaped because I was not straight. And so domination is not a picture. Domination is a process. And what destroys you one day is the same thing that can emancipate you another day. Mm -hmm. So we should talk about racism. We should talk about masculine domination. We should talk about masculine abuse. We should talk about homophobia because they are processes. They are moving. They are not a category like straight or like white. I find them absurd. And in a way, there is a parallel in the trajectory of my mother and me. She also escaped because she didn't mm. fit in. Because my mother, you know, my father, all the violence that he was living, um, uh, everything he thought was a decision for him, you know. I'm drinking a lot of alcohol because I'm a real man. I do dangerous things because I'm a real man. I don't obey at school because I'm a tough guy. Mm. Um, so all the violence, all the things that led him to a violent life, to the fact that today my father is 57 and he cannot walk, he cannot breathe, he cannot move, everything was in his mind a product of his decisions. But my mother, as a woman, she never got this privilege mm. to think it was her decision. Mm. It was my father who told her, you stay home. It was my father who told him, you have to cook. It was my father who told her, you shut up. Mm. And paradoxically, out of what we could call, I don't know, a paradox of domination, it's because she didn't have a choice that one day she was able to say, I'm going to reclaim what was stolen from me. So she took all the stuff of my father in a garbage bag, she threw everything through the window, and she said to my father, fuck off. Mm. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and we know, like, sociologically, that um, a gay person or a woman uh, in the working class will have much more t uh, a chance to have an, uh, a degree from school, for example, than a man, uh, or that they will live much longer, or that... And once again, it doesn't erase the masculine domination or the homophobia or the racism of all those things. But precisely what I just want to say is that all those things are, are, are moving mm. like the humiliation of, of my childhood. And we are lost if we try to understand politics with simple and static categories, mm. I think. You published a book last year also about uh, these um, processes that your mother uh, went through. But I read somewhere, it's called... Um, I read somewhere that you were writing these two books parallelly. That it was actually a, a story of two parallel metamorphoses. 
uh, but that you decided at some point to make two books out of it. How come those two sort of stories of change were not, it was impossible for you to contain them within one book? It's really like a craft uh, mm. question, a question of crafting. I wanted to write a big book on metamorphosis, putting in parallel my metamorphosis and my, the metamorphosis of my mother when she escaped from my father mm. after 20 years with him, and how she moved to Paris, how she decided to change her name to imitate me, <laughs> how she met uh, with Catherine Deneuve. Yes, it's a beautiful uh, passage. <laughs> <laughs> when the they idol. have a cigarette together. <laughs> yes, uh, it's the biggest source of pride of my mother. Every day she talks about that. Every day she talks about that. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> there was even, uh, <laughs> I will tell you a little funny story, when uh, Thomas Ostermeyer, the, 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 the stage director that I'm doing Who Killed My Father in Dramaton with this week, uh, he did also the book of my friend Didier, uh, Retour à Reims, Returning to Reims before, and they were doing it in, in Paris. Um, and at the premiere, uh, Catherine Deneuve came, and uh, it was after I, she met my mother. Uh, and um, she went to say bravo to Didier and Thomas at the end of the play, and Didier didn't know what to say to Catherine Deneuve, so he said, oh, you know my friend Edouard? And mm. Catherine Deneuve says, oh, I know his mother, mostly. <laughs> 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 and my mother was so proud of, of it. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, oh, I mean, yes, it was... Uh, Anyway, it was just to, to, to laugh a little bit, but um, uh, I wanted to put those stories together and, mm. and they were not working together. I think it's really technical, maybe. Uh, and one day I cut them in two and suddenly I had two books. I had to call my publisher and say, I, have to, I had zero books and now I have two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and mm. that, that's, that's how it uh, happened, yeah. Do you think the reason why they were not working together, here's a suggestion, mm -hmm. is precisely because of this idea of melancholia that you were talking about before? Because Changer Method mm -hmm. is sort of the story of a boy who fights so hard to get away and then is overwhelmed with melancholia, mm -hmm. you know, about what he has done to himself. Okay. Um, whereas Combat et Metamorphose d'une femme is rather the opposite, you know, it's a story about a woman that has such a shitty life, you know, being abused by society and the men around her in so many ways, and then she manages to change her life and sort of become liberated, and she's happy. Mm -hmm. There's euphoria, really, in this transformation. My mother is so happy. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes it makes me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know it's strange because I remember when I was writing the, the story of her life, mm. um, I was talking to her, I asked her if I could put pictures in the book, mm. I asked her if I could put her real name, so uh, her name is different in the end of Eddie and exactly. in this book because in this book it's her real name, Monique. Um, and so I was writing about all those men uh, who were abusing her, like my father or like the man before. Uh, uh, and I remember when I was writing the book, I was talking to her and I was telling her, my God, those men were awful uh, with you. And she was always telling me, oh, but it's the past. I'm not going <laughs> to cry about it all my life. I don't care. Mm. Um, and in a way, I found it uh, beautiful, this kind of um, strength to uh, move forward uh, and to, which is the opposite of the, of the bourgeois culture, which is a culture of your wound, culture of your trauma, you know, so you write about it like me, or you go to a psychoanalysis, so you know, you, you, you kind of uh, have a little garden with all your trauma. And in a way, I, uh, I, 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 this is something that I always admired the milieu of my childhood for. They didn't have a choice, they did it, they did it because they didn't have a choice. And also for maybe more sad reasons, reason, which is the, maybe one of the greatest uh, dispossession that society can do to you is the dispossession of, of being able to perceive your own life. Mm. 
So you suffer less from it because you don't see it. You don't see what is going on. Like when I was talking to my mother and I was talking about masculine domination and those men doing this to her, she was always telling me, no, no, it's not about men. It's about your father or it's about, it's not about uh, domination or mm -hmm. I, she didn't use that word. But, um, and in a way, of course, like my mother, she, she haven't read Simone de Beauvoir or Judith Butler or Angela Davis. And uh, um, she, she's not, because of that dispossession, she's not able to see her own story. So if, she, if my mother was writing an autobiography, she would not mention masculine domination or she wouldn't mention poverty because she would be ashamed of it, for, for example. And it would be a major issue. That's why also sometimes a question that people often ask in the literary field, which is, can you write about other people's stories? Can you write of, of other people's bodies? It's sometimes a little bit a, a, a bourgeois question, mm. you know, because they assume that we, everybody has the meaning to see his or her own life, you know? Uh, no, not everybody has access to the structural understanding of life. Uh, and uh, if you don't write about uh, some stories, people will, will, will never say them and they will disappear. And then you will become one of the weapons of violence. Mm. Uh, so it was important for me to, I mean, I write instead of other people because they wouldn't tell the stories I'm telling and I think they are important. I think that a story of my mother without masculine domination would be a problem. Uh, and eventually, of course, like any utopist, I hope that one day everybody will be able to write their own story, mm. but not now. It's mm. not true. So you can either accept that fact and shape literature in this way or create this bourgeois dream where everything is easy and possible. Mm. Last time we met, <laughs> it was exactly a year ago, uh, and it was after the performance of uh, Thomas Ostermeyer's adaptation of Who Killed My Father, the same that you're going to perform in, at Dramaten uh, this weekend. After the event, we were standing outside the theater, <laughs> and it was such a huge success. Uh, and you were there with your crowd of, of um, friends. And then a woman walks up to you and she congratulates you on the evening, saying, you know, how brilliant you are, how brilliant the performance was, how much she loves and adores your writing and your books. Uh, you know, like many people did. And then before she leaves, she says, <laughs> and I'm not even a lefty. <laughs> and we had so much fun around this. I mean, it made us laugh, her way of sort of expressing gratitude um, through distancing herself from you. Uh, you know, like, I like you, but no homo, you know? It was like, no lefty. Uh, so, uh, but I've been returning to this scene because I think it was such a funny thing that happened there and then. And I wanted to ask you, how does it make you feel uh, to sort of uh, appeal to a crowd that doesn't necessarily share your politics and your values uh, and your sort of views of the world? It is, for you, is that a sign of success? Does it make you think, you know, I'm able to speak even to somebody who's no lefty? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm able to affect even my opponents, you know, with the strong material and my analysis in my writing. Or is it the other way around? Does it make you feel maybe I'm speaking to the wrong crowd here? Sometimes it leaves me hopeless. <laughs> uh, sometimes arts leaves me hopeless. Um, I have met so many people uh, telling me that they were moved by the movies of Ken Loach and who would the months before vote for right-wing parties and therefore create the violence that the people in the movies they were moved by uh, uh, create when they are in power. So there is al always this kind of, of, of paradox uh, in, the, in, in the art, which is also the fact that um, 
art tends to always make things in a, in a way or another acceptable. You know, art is also a filter. Art is because there is an ideology in our society of what is art or what is literature or what, and it makes things, no matter how confrontational you try to be, it makes things more acceptable than if you say them in, in another context. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to also uh, rethink and reshape the notion of what it is to be a, a, a political artist or a political writer and to kind of create like a plural, uh, pluralist and multiple approach to the commitment. So when I write, I also go in the street. And for me, someone who would be writing about poor people and say, I stand for working class people and would never go in the street, this person is a liar. Because this person don't realize or pretend to not realize that not everybody has access to the same, uh, to, to, to the books. That the, the, the art form changed the reception of, of what you are saying. That there are like all of those things coming together that make you, like we, we, we always, we, we always, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's also a tragic and sad story, but we always have in the literary field, you probably heard it 5,000 times, we always have people asking, how can we make working class people read? You know, how can we make, uh, give access to dominated people, to people who are oppressed and everything? Which is, I don't eliminate this question, it's a beautiful question. Uh, the Communist Party in France, even if the Communist Party was horrible on so many levels, uh, homophobic and everything, the Communist Party was trying to do that, were trying to create books committees and everything. Um, but at the same time, there is always sociologically something naive to that question. Because as Pierre Bourdieu showed, social class are not only defined by money, but also by the access to culture. Uh, and if you say, why, how can we make working class people read? There is a sociological paradox in this question because if they read, at this moment, they will not be working class anymore. You know? They will be more privileged because they will have the access to the cultural capital. Mm -hmm. So every time you make someone read, you have to abandon them and fight for the ones who is not reading yet. You know? So there is a, 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 a trap and a, and a roundabout in this, in, the, in this question. And I believe that one way of overcoming this sociological paradox is to reinvent what it is to be a political writer and to multiply the spaces where you talk, which is in the streets, in the books, for me in the theaters, for example. That's why I accepted and I wanted to do this play with Thomas Ostermeyer, because I knew that as a working class kid, I was going to theater with school, but I would never open a book, that there was something immediate about the play that made it possible, even for a working class person. So we just have to, yes, kind of redesign this, and redesign this means to leave behind all the easy ideologies, uh, like everything is possible or it's possible that we make everybody read. Like we have to acknowledge the paradoxes, the complexities, the impossibilities, and then we can recreate what it is to be a writer, which is, I think, urgent. Thank you so much, Edouard. And you. thank you all for listening to us. Thank you so much. See, thank you both so much for giving us so much to think about. Hope everyone takes the questions with you, within or with your friends on your way out. Keep the conversation going. As a small uh, thank you, here's a gift that is a piece of art by Swedish artist Emily Sandström that's also a card game in a literary setting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ja, en applåd igen.